0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where every week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor.
2: And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about Putin's threats of nuclear war, the violence breaking out in Leicester, and whether polyamory is the way forward. First up, for his cover piece in this week's issue, Paul Wood asks whether Putin will push the nuclear button in order to save himself. He joins us now, along with The Spectator's assistant online editor, Lisa Haseldine, who has this week been speaking to some of the 70 Russian councillors who have signed a petition calling for Putin to be removed from office. Paul, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, but this morning the Russian president issued a statement saying that he's not bluffing when it comes to using nuclear weapons, as well as calling up 300,000 reservists to fight in Ukraine. So I'm afraid my first question is, is rather a heavy one. Are we heading for nuclear war?
3: There's no yes or no answer to that, is there? He's probably bluffing. It would take a madman to actually want to instigate nuclear war between Russia and NATO. But just in case we didn't get the message in Putin's dramatic, almost slightly unhinged speech, we had people like the editor-in-chief of Russia Today, who's a Kremlin mouthpiece, saying we either win in eastern Ukraine or we have nuclear war. There is no third option. Um, Everything about this speech was dramatic. First of all, it didn't happen on Tuesday night as advertised and all sorts of rumours were flying around. Putin was ill, Putin had been deposed. The best interpretation I had of the delay was that he had wanted to call for a full mobilisation, but some of the technocrats around him, and I believe the governor of the Central Bank resigned, perhaps because of this, said, hang on a minute, the economy is already tanking, you will completely destroy it if you have a full mobilisation. So perhaps Putin isn't fully in charge and perhaps people are starting to tell him bad news to his face. Anyway, much later than expected, he comes on and says in so many words to NATO, watch out, we have nukes and we're prepared to use them. Now, if you look at what Putin said over many years, it's always been a doctrine of no first strike, no first use. So is he remaking Russian nuclear doctrine on the hoof? Maybe Yes. Maybe he can square it with his previous statements in that he's also said that if there was an existential threat to Russia and an existential threat to the state, whether from nuclear weapons or from conventional weapons, then Russia would consider its nuclear arsenal to be a legitimate thing that it could use. So we've we've seen a series of of kind of people have to sort of understand the, the kind of alternative reality that Vladimir Putin and his supporters are living in. They're going to make eastern Ukraine part of Russia. Russian state TV has been talking about NATO fighting in Ukraine already. And suddenly, in, in Putin's speech, NATO is blackmailing Russia with nuclear weapons. And what else can we do but respond in kind, he says.
2: And and so when it comes to the parts of eastern Ukraine, the so-called People's Republics, that Putin wants to to join Russia, is that is that to add to the argument of the so-called existential threat? So those are now... In his eyes, part of Russia that's being attacked, not part of Ukraine.
3: Well, this is a man who's almost literally painted himself into a corner because once you engineer these referenda over what would be some 20% of Ukrainian territory, and some of it the Russians don't even control at the moment, but if you engineer these referenda and then say, oh, they're now part of Russia, then you, you've defined the Ukrainian counteroffensive with NATO weapons as an attack on Mother Russia. So yes, he's uh, step by step, he's got himself deeper and deeper into a classical quagmire. And a lot of commentary, I think, has correctly said, these are acts of desperation. He knows he's losing. I can't imagine that throwing hundreds of thousands of fairly reluctant troops into the battle is going to make that much difference. When, as I was saying in the piece, those few Russian soldiers who have written about their experiences or talked about them, say that it's a hollow army. It doesn't have working equipment. The armoured vehicles have got um, balding tyres and break down. There isn't enough fuel for the tanks. One report I saw talked about Russian soldiers going into battle with six bullets each. There is an awful logic to, to Russia moving towards, if not strategic missiles, then tactical weapons because it doesn't have the conventional forces to fight this war. And if Putin is going to make these belligerent noises, what else has he got? It's extremely worrying.
1: Lisa, in this week's issue, you speak to some of these local councillors in Russia who've who've bravely signed this letter in protest at, at Putin's action and have spoken to you, which also seems quite, quite brave of them. Can you explain their reasoning to listeners and also what might be the repercussions from their actions? Mm,
4: yeah, so the first thing to say is that what they're doing is remarkably brave. I, I was surprised by how willing... They were to speak to me and I think something that was driving pretty much everyone that I spoke to was this idea that, well, one, they are sort of local politicians, they represent people and as much as people, it seems in Russia, are too scared to come out and sort of speak out individually. A lot of the local politicians I spoke to basically felt like they had a responsibility to their constituents to come out and speak on their behalf. One of the things that they we're really concerned about and continue to be concerned about is basically the effect that this war is having on Russia and on sort of Russian society. One person I spoke to mentioned sort of the fact that you're going to end up with basically a whole generation of young people who have seen active combat, who might be wounded, who might end up with disabilities because of it, with no sort of proper prospect of rehabilitation or reintegration into society we have so much precedent from previous wars as to what that can do. There are also obvious points about the economy and also just, I think a general sense that a lot of Russians feel that they do want to be part of the world and not be sort of pariahs alongside Putin in this and essentially feel like they have to speak out because they can't simply sit by. But for them, it is obviously dangerous to do this and at the moment, several of the councillors I spoke to had actually been fined last week, sort of in the region of about £700 each, for the fact that they had signed this letter that I mentioned in my article addressing the state Duma with a plea to consider impeaching Putin. So, according to current laws, that is considered to be discrediting the authorities. Of course, if they continue to speak out or take part in some sort of protest, they do also run the risk of ending up in jail or further fines. So, yeah, it's dangerous. And of course, that is only what I guess is codified as law. There's nothing to say that more ominous things might not happen to them. Or I hate to say that, but you know, it, it is dangerous that the fact that they are speaking out.
2: And Paul, what do you make of the challenges Putin faces back home as well as in his wars? Abroad, I mean, there's been speculation by some in the West that the Russian Federation may even break apart if the war continues to go badly for for Putin. Do you think that's a probable outcome?
3: It's a possible outcome. Uh, I covered Russia's last misadventure in Chechnya, the war in 99, 2000, and you have this incredible phenomenon: Russian mothers and grandmothers getting on trains to go and wake their sons their conscript sons out of the front line in Chechnya, or coming back and openly voicing their disgust with the war because of the deaths and injuries among their boys. And we've the CIA says we've now had 80,000 Russian casualties in this short war in Ukraine, 40,000 plus dead, another 40,000 or so injured. You have to think that must be having an effect on the support for Vladimir Putin at home, despite the fact that he controls most of the Russian media and state TV, It's families and neighbours talking about these losses and talking about funerals they've been to. It has to be very damaging, and a lot of people who follow the Kremlin very closely are just wondering why there hasn't been some kind of coup, that he hasn't been replaced by the Russian version of the men in grey suits. Of course, the much larger consequence of this war might not be Vladimir Putin's demise, but as you say, the demise of the Russian Federation. Uh, It's this huge, essentially it's a colonial empire there are, I'm told, 190 different ethnic groups and a lot of them in the past have decri- tried to declare independence, would probably like to do so again and must know now that there is no army to send against any independence movement in Chechnya or Dagestan or Ingushetia, or in the far-flung regions of Siberia. So there is a, a terrible logic to the breakup of Russia. A lot of people, expert in these things, think it's going to happen. And in that famous phrase, it would happen slowly at first and then very, very quickly.
1: Lisa, in your piece, you talk about how difficult it is for Russians to admit their doubts to each other, and partly because of all the self-censorship, and obviously the fines and prison sentences that exist. But do you you get the impression that people are starting to kind of feel like they've had enough of this, and that there's going to be some sort of, not necessarily a coup, but some kind of uprising against what's going on?
4: Yes, I'm hesitant to say a definitive yes. But yes, I do think that momentum of some sort is building I think the, the impression I've got from local councillors I have spoken to is that well for one they've told me how how much support they've received privately in the wake of sort of going public with this letter and petition so there clearly are a lot of people in Russia who don't support this war who are getting fed up and who essentially until now have felt too scared to speak out for whatever reason. I think we still have a way to go necessarily before some sort of coup were to take place. But even in the wake of this announcement by Putin about partial mobilisation, I've heard from speaking to people that there will be protests going on in some major cities. How many people turn up is a different matter. But the willing, I think, is there.
1: And, And Paul, just to finish on, what should the West and I guess NATO's response be to Putin's threats? Should they react or should they call his bluff?
3: I suppose we have to ask, as with every foreign question, where does our vital national interest lie? And I think, above all, we have an interest in not turning the British Isles into a smoking, radioactive crisp. He's probably bluffing, but there may be a point at which support for Ukraine becomes quite difficult. Every foreign problem since the end of the Second World War in, in Britain, is, in the debate that surrounds it, has been defined as Munich. Ukraine might be Munich in the sense that had Putin had an easy and quick victory, he may have started looking at the Baltic states where there are Russian minorities. And therefore, arming the Ukrainians by Britain, by the US and others seemed like the right thing to do. We're now approaching a very very difficult moment where as i was saying putin has been backed into a corner so how far are we prepared to go in that support will we risk a nuclear exchange beyond ukraine's borders for this reason a lot of people are pushing the ukrainians to negotiate having spoken to a lot of senior ukrainian officials they are not going to negotiate not unless there is an ultimatum from the west that all support will be withdrawn And they, along with our Prime Minister Liz Truss, want not just the Eastern Territories back, but Crimea, where, having been to Crimea a number of times, I think there is genuine support in Crimea for union with Russia. It was only given to the Ukrainians in the 1950s by Khrushchev. There are a lot of Russian speakers there. But the Ukrainians are adamant they're going to get everything back, including Crimea. So now we're at this very difficult moment. Do we push for talks or do we push for a Ukrainian victory? The Americans have been very carefully calibrating their response. The debate in in the U.S. now is about whether to give Ukrainians long-range missiles. Putin has started using long-range missiles against Ukrainian infrastructure, against power stations and things that they really need. The Ukrainians want to hit back, but if they start dropping missiles over the border in Russia, that will be an attack on Mother Russia and into this incredibly dangerous escalation that Putin has threatened. So I don't know what the answer to this is how far this very carefully calibrated support should go. But I think we should always keep in mind that the the stakes, as Mr Putin reminded us in his speech, are of the very highest here.
1: Thank you, Paul and Lisa. Next, in the magazine this week, Douglas Murray, in his column, has written about the sectarian violence we've seen erupting in Leicester over the past month. The journalist Sunny Hundle and research analysis specialising in race relations Dr Akib Hassan Join us now to discuss. Sunny, could you start by giving listeners a sense of what exactly is going on in Leicester and and why the violence has erupted now?
5: So, basically, the violence in Leicester, you could argue, had longer roots going back. I mean, you can go as far back as you want. 2014 is when the Indian nationalist government got elected in India. That has led to more attacks on minorities in India, Christians. Muslims and Sikhs and as a result of that there's been more tension over here. You can even go back as far back as partition If you want to and say that was a turning point in uh, relations between Muslims and Hindus getting worse But to be honest, I don't think there's there's any point in doing that. It all started off with a cricket match this time around on the 28th of August when these India fans went around shouting slogans against Pakistan but also quite overtly religious slogans, Hindu religious slogans. So they kind of injected this religious character into these this conflict quite early on and then beat up some person who was supposedly anti-India. So that escalated from there through social media with Muslims claiming that they're being targeted, Hindus claiming that Muslims are coming for them and they needed to mobilize, etc etc and that led to on Saturday the big demonstrations on both sides with people being mobilized via social media
2: and rekib what do you think of, of sunny's point of the the origin of the disorder there i mean you've described the causes of the violence to be a mixture of domestic and international factors could, could you could explain a little bit about what what do you mean
0: well, I agree with what much of what Sonny has said. Leicester traditionally has been viewed as a paragon of social cohesion, multicultural success story. But I do think that the local political climate there has changed in recent times. talked about an increasing communalisation of local politics. Sunny there references recent developments in Indian politics. And I think that that's a really important point to make because what we're seeing here is foreign-inspired sectarianism. In modern day Britain. And, and I do think we have to recognise that in the mainstream there is some of a romanticisation of India in general, which has increasingly become a hotbed of Hindutva ideology, Hindu fundamentalism. I think when you're looking at the Leicester disorders, we can't ignore the fact that there have been out-of-town troublemakers reportedly travelling from major cities such as London and Birmingham, which have exacerbated community tensions. Even though this is quite controversial, I I do think that we need to have somewhat of an assessment of what the, what is the impact of more recent waves of immigration coming from the Indian subcontinent. As I said, in India increasingly becoming a hotbed of Hindu fundamentalism. The reality is that Pakistan has a very serious problem with Islamist extremism. The most recent stats from the Fragile States Index, according to that index, Pakistan is a more fragile state than Mauritania, North Korea and Palestine. So I do think that even though it's controversial to say, while we have to say that much of these problems are homegrown, we also do have to be quite honest about what are the potentially negative impacts of more recent waves of immigration.
1: And what have you made of the police response to the violence?
5: I think the police response was inadequate all the way through. And to be honest, we need a framework to deal with these sorts of incidents because A few years ago, I was involved in raising awareness around Sikh disruption, Sikh mobs disrupting marriages, interfaith marriages at Gurdwaras. And even then, my biggest complaint was that the police were not taking any action to protect people whose weddings were being disrupted because they felt, well, the temple will deal with it, the Gurdwara will deal with it, and we don't have to get involved really. And that sort of attitude is really frustrating because these are law and order issues. And frankly, it's the police's job to maintain law and order, not mobs of Hindus, Muslims or Sikhs. And in this case round, firstly, the police were caught unaware that so many people were going to turn up on uh, Saturday. They admittedly had only eight officers facing 300. And then on top of that, they... It seemed like they didn't even know that this was going to happen on Saturday, which is even more alarming because at the end of the day, they should be aware that there are people spreading messages, quite open messages on social media saying we need to mobilize to protect our community. And the narrative on both sides, on the Hindu and Muslim side, was that our families are not being protected by the police, so we have to do it. And you're getting this escalation played out through social media, which the police is just unable to handle. And frankly, they should be the only ones to handle this. I don't want so-called self-appointed community leaders doing this job. I don't want social media sort of savvy people trying to say, we need to mobilize our community to protect ourselves. That's, I'm sorry, but no, it's not your job. And that that is always used by those guys for their own benefit. It's not for the benefit of um, social cohesion. So all these factors are coming into play to make this whole situation worse. The police were unprepared. All these social media people wanted to make a name for themselves and wanted to mobilise people behind them. And that made the whole situation far more toxic.
1: I mean, do you think it's fair to say that the police might be nervous of involving themselves in the violence, given the religious nature to it?
5: Possibly. I think that there is also this attitude that local community leaders can deal with when a, a disturbance has religious overtones. And they don't seem to understand that these so-called community leaders don't firstly have that much sway over the youngsters as they think they do. And secondly, the the fact of the matter is that these people are in it for themselves. These guys like Mohammed Hijab who are running around making all sorts of incendiary speeches they're doing it for themselves they're not doing it for the community or for social cohesion in general they want to make a name for themselves on youtube and twitter and elsewhere and so the job of the police should have been right from the start to say we're going to clamp down on any protests which are taking place outside places of worship and if there's a mob coming be aware that we will arrest you and i'm shocked that on Monday, when there was a protest outside Smethik, a, religious, a Hindu religious temple in Smethik, Birmingham, that the police did not arrest these people by the busload, because I knew there was a poster going around. I could have predicted that these people were going to turn up. I'm shocked that the police didn't. And then these protests are not going to stop unless the police take a hard line against them.
2: Hmm. Ricky, do you, do you think, as Douglas suggests in his piece, that the mainstream media have either not followed violence fully or have not got to the bottom of what's really going on do do you think there is some truth to that or is it just this case of a lot of this happening during this country's period of mourning for the queen where where there was other other news that was pushing things down the agenda I wouldn't be
0: in the business of hiding behind her majesty's departure when it comes to matters as important as this if, if truth be told I think I think there's certain sections of the media they adopt, in my view, an uncritical view of diversity. And I think that's where the nervousness comes from when it comes to inflame, the inflammation of uh, social tensions between ethnic and religious minorities in urban inner city areas. I think that Sunny makes an excellent point where there's this tendency to outsource law and order responsibilities to uh, social community leaders uh, and, he, and he makes a great point that many of these community leaders may not have much influence and some of them really don't have social cohesion at the heart of their activities either. I've I made a point that many of the community leaders which have been empowered in recent times they tend to follow narrow group-based interests, not even the mainstream interests within their own ethnic or religious minority group, instead of uh, looking to cultivate cohesive civic identities in their local areas. And looking at what took place in Smithic, to my understanding, there was one solitary arrest which was made. In, in response to that, which I find absolutely remarkable, I believe that is Sandwell Police, which is responsible for what takes place in that particular area. We saw a wave of masked men descending on the Durga Bhawan Hindu Centre. And and I think that much of that came from material that was being disseminated on social media. Supposedly, this temple had invited a notorious hate preacher from India, Sadhvi Ritambara. But even if that was the case, that is not an acceptable response to something like that. We have numerous democratic and political rights where you can demonstrate robustly without resorting to such forms of intimidation. And I do think there that, that the police response, I think in terms of intelligence, I think I'm surprised that the police couldn't see it coming. But then the police response to what was taking place was uh, somewhat weak.
1: And, and just finally, Sini, you mentioned some of these individuals involved, such as Mohammed Hijab, are, are sort of doing this for views online. Do, do you get the impression that as well as being inspired by what's going on in India, they're also getting support online from communities further afield than in Leicester?
5: Yeah, absolutely. They are doing this for a global audience in many cases. They're doing this to build up their own brands. And I think that element is underexplored in this whole phenomenon because everyone is turning this into either a clash of civilizations or is turning into, you know, we're importing ethnic violence from India and yeah, there is an element of that. But this country had like, what, decades and decades of uh, Protestant versus Catholic sort of tension as well. So let's not get ahead of ourselves as if like the UK never had ethnic or religious tension before these ethnic minorities came along. I found that bit of Douglas Murray's article completely ridiculous. Like, you know, this Britain was not a peaceful haven before immigration. So let's not kid ourselves and what we've got is a situation where lots of people are basically trying to make a name for themselves and it's in their interests to disrupt community relations it's in their interests to rile people up in order to mobilize them behind them you know and that's what's making this whole situation worse. So, like I said, the social media stars who have descended on Leicester from outside. But in fact, also the Indian media's role is underplayed here. The Indian media is notoriously sort of the right wing and in support of Hindu nationalism. And what they do frequently is they take little clips of information from the UK, turn it into something completely different over there it becomes like a barrage of misinformation. And then those clips then end up coming back into the UK through WhatsApp and other social media platforms. And so people in the UK, British Hindus in London or Nottingham, will be looking at these clips from India first, thinking that Leicester Hindus are under attack and this World War Three is broken out against um, Hindus in Leicester. And that's the impression that a lot of them got because they're not getting the news from BBC. They're getting the news from you know, Indian channels and they trust those channels. And so as a result, that amplifies and worsens the situation. And I don't think there's any understanding of how that's happening or any way of stopping that from happening in the UK. And so the police have to take a much more proactive approach when dealing with such misinformation that's coming from lots of different quarters.
1: Thank you, Rakeep and Sunny. And finally, is three or even more company? Mary Wakefield writes in her Spectator column this week that polyamorous or ethically non-monogamous relationships create more problems than they solve. Mary joins us now along with the comedian, writer and teacher, Elf Lyons, who's written about being in a polyamorous relationship before. Mary, to start with, for listeners who might not be aware of what polyamory involves, can you explain it as you understand it? I think, and I'm happy to be corrected,
6: that it's just a non-monogamous romantic relationship which can take any number of different forms, so you form a romantic connection, and I think some form of commitment with not just one person, but any number of people, and, 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 and that's something that's reasonably stable and akin to a kind of partnership, but with more than one partner. And, and what drew your attention to polyamory this week? I had actually been reading a blog by someone I really respected and liked, and as a part of that blog they had linked to classified ads for a number of their friends who were looking for nesting partners or people to raise children with and I read through these biographies and they all seemed like wonderful women but they were all in polyamorous relationships and something about it just struck me as really sad that these relationships that no one in these many part relationships sometimes with five or six people was prepared to have a child with these these women and that Yeah, my my heart went out to them and I felt that there was something fundamentally unfulfilling about a polyamorous relationship.
2: Elf, what do you make of of that? You've written articles before about being in polyamorous relationships. Uh, How would you describe polyamory?
7: I think it comes from that healthy idea that love is infinite, that you don't have a finite amount of love to give, as I'm sure any parent would realise and say as well. And also, you know, monogamy is still quite, quite a recent thing in relationships in our history. Monogamy, people seem to assume, is the original, and actually it's not. And based on how many people, you know, relationships and marriages end in divorce, and the amount of cases of people who've cheated on their partners, there's clearly this huge pressure to perform this very traditional idea of what a dream ideal relationship is and I think not ethical non-monogamy polyamory it can be multiple different strands so you've got ethical non-monogamy you can be with lots of different people in lots of different ways you've got hierarchical polyamory where you've got a primary partner and then you've got secondary partners and then people that you have physical intimate relationships with and it's very casual or you've got non-hierarchical polyamory where Everyone's treated on an equal playing field. And there's so many different strands of it. I'd really recommend reading Polysecure, and Attachment Theory and Polyamory, because it explains it in a really beautiful way that I think some of the more books from the past possibly don't, like everyone often quotes The Ethical Slut, but that was written nearly 30 years ago. And there's been so much that's been written since.
6: What's the difference? Why do you need all these names? It To me, you know, as a sort of, I don't know, Gen X or whatever I am, It sounds just like normal living before marriage in that one can have a series of relationships or friendships, some of them sexual, some not. And you just kind of get on with it. Why do you need all these kind of formalized ways of being? And sorry, if you do formalize things, isn't it then a bit confusing if you want to change your mind?
7: Well, I'd say that's the same with actual traditional marriage. I mean, I think there's so much healthiness actually within having clear boundaries and having clear ideas of what you go by I think there is a difference between being hierarchical and non-hierarchical so you can go in with clear communication like there are lots of married couples who might cheat on each other and might think that's because they don't love the other person clearly the communication's brought broken down and they clearly have other needs that they maybe need to talk through and maybe perhaps perhaps opening up their relationship or swinging could be exactly what they need. And having that understanding, people often associate swinging and ethical non-monogamy and polyamory as the exact same. And they're totally different. There are so many different strands. The same way there are totally different ways to have a traditional marriage. And it was making me think, actually, when I read your article, it sort of made me think that you're sort of arguing, actually, with this idea Matthew Neal was writing about it in The Independent, about how more... Couples, especially polyamory and EM couples, should have more legal protection and social recognition. Because I still think there's such this old-fashioned stigma that is sort of thrown at EM and polyamorous couples, which is sort of thrown the way it used to be at LGBTQ plus couples with regards to having families and having non-traditional family structures if that makes any
6: sense it does completely I guess I mean I've got too many questions I suppose but to cut to the chase I guess what I think is that I'm not sure it's an ideal relationship in which to bring up a child I guess by that I mean a collection of different people all in romantic relationships with each other because a I think to an extent a kid needs to know who its biological parents are, that becomes a question later on, as you see from all the people searching for biological parents. It's a form of knowing who you are. And secondly, you know, there is something inherently unstable about a multi-part relationship. They're just more likely to break up. And then you've got a kid not knowing who its actual parents are. So from the perspective of the child, I'm not sure it is such a good thing, but I'm sure you disagree. Because I
7: totally disagree because I think that also, you can put the same issues with this straight, heteronormative ma- traditional marriage with the amount of ones that end in divorce, the amount yeah. of relationships, single parents bring up children fantastically successfully with yeah, lots but of it, different family members. Like yeah. it takes, I do believe in the idea it takes a village to raise a child, couples, you know, a single parent or children of divorced parents, who will then meet the many or maybe a few yeah, of the different those, partners th- those their things, individual th- parents those things back. can be I think there are loads of different ways. Children are constantly faced with different people who aren't their traditional birth parents. But yeah. They still have very happy upbringings. And I think any environment which is encouraging communication and honesty is a really healthy one. Also, it's sort of, I think when I was reading your article and you can... I felt like it put so much pressure on the women or the idea that men in polyamorous relationships or men in general aren't willingly wanting to go into these setups. I think having known and known many polyamorous couples with children and many adults who were brought up with parents who were openly non-monogamous, who all were open, I think it's quite an outdated idea to think that if a child is from any environment or brought up in an environment which is not that very traditional 1950s, one parent, one mother, one father, that they're not going to be happy.
6: And absolutely not. I mean, and of course, the kids of divorced parents can be very happy and all that. But that's not to say divorce is a good thing. It's a, that's a false kind of argument, I think. Um, so, but divorce, I think, can obviously, there's nothing worse than two
7: people being stuck in a relationship if they're not happy. And the I amount of people a, that I that know is... who said that they wish their parents yeah. had been divorced, but felt pressured at that time not to, because there's this idea that if a relationship fails, you are a failure. I think what I really love about polyamory yeah. is the relationships I have with my partners or previous partners and it's more like a belief system for me than necessarily always sometimes I'm in one relationship sometimes I've been in multiple yeah. but my relationship and my communication skills with all those people have been brilliant and yeah. I think there's a big difference actually with how poly people or e teaches you to deal with attachment and to deal with working through problems in a relationship that perhaps traditional monogamous structures have sort of been in, like there's this idea that You've got problems, you keep it to yourself, and you don't talk about it. And the idea that going to see a therapist is the sign of a failure in a couple. And actually, it's really healthy to say, I want this to work, or I think there might be problems, let's talk it out.
2: Can, yeah. I, can I ask Elf a question that, that may be ignorant, and I apologize if it is, but from a sort of outsider perspective, looking at the idea of polyamory, are there problems that come about in terms of jealousy where, when you have most? So multiple partners involved. Is that ever an issue within polyamorous relationships? Is that a common issue in polyamorous relationships?
7: Yeah, well, a lot of, of, so many of the writings we talk, jealousy is a very natural thing. I think the key is how you communicate your jealousy and how you vocalize it and also realizing it's not necessarily something to be ashamed about. And really when we're jealous, it tends to be because something in our needs has been possibly overlooked or maybe we're not feeling stable in certain parts of our life. So, like, being really upfront, I know depending on where I am in my menstrual cycle, I'm going to be really jealous one week in comparison to the other. During my ovulation week, I'm the most confident woman in the entire world, and I don't feel any jealousy at all. But I know in one particular week in the run-up, that is when I'm my most needy. And I know that's probably the last time I'm going to feel feeling super confident to say to my partner, yes, you can go on this date with so-and-so or yes, why don't we do this? But then I work a very different style of polyamory or ethical non-monogamy to other people. And it's also like, it's like with consent, you can say yes to something and then you can go, actually, no, that's not for me. And I think that's the lovely thing about anyone entering into e and is it's a constant dialogue. It doesn't. You don't just say right. I'm E and M, and that's me till the day I die. You could be for a period or with one partner, and then you could decide that actually you're monogamous with one individual later on. It's a constant dialogue and conversation.
6: I definitely agree with the need for more sort of therapy, potentially, and openness within a relationship. But I just wondered, like, do all your partner, do your potential partners in a polyamorous relationship, all feel the same way at the same time? So, what if you feel like bringing a relationship to a close or isn't it shifting all the time? And doesn't that mean, like, constant dialogue? People don't all decide to end or begin something at the same time, do they? So, oh, but then same with any sort of
7: relationship or any dynamic in a family. People in the family will all but feel then you very don't different have things, or some formalized. couples will be feeling different places. But that's okay. just, I think, the difficulty with being human. I don't think that's necessarily the issue with the relationship dynamic.
6: Yeah. I suppose that's why I, in the first place, would wonder about the need to name all these things or formalize them and have rules because human life does just ebb and flow. Uh-huh. So why do you need to codify well, things?
7: I for example I've got lots of friends from the sort of ENM community and one part one friend is married and yes. he and his wife they have primary partners and secondary partners all around the world because that's their relationship style. And yes. if he's going into for example he meets someone at an event He needs to say to her, this is exactly what my current situation is. Because she might say, I'm non-monogamous. But she needs to clarify, does that mean that she's happy with everyone being the same? Or does she want a marriage? Does she want this? It's about making sure that everyone is, I think, on the same page. It's purely because, well, I think it's just respectful because the amount of people just assume being polyamorous is just putting your keys in the bowl and having sex with loads of people mm. like there's some strands of polyamory which are purely just about intimacy but without the physical intimacy it's about the emotional intimacy
6: yeah
7: I, th- I don't really think there's any problems with the having different versions of it and I think the more reading you do and the more you understand about it and also the more people you know in the community I think it's the most ethical way to go about it. Why wouldn't you want to know as much as you can about something that involves you loving so many people and and being as considerate and as consensual as possible?
6: And you then you, you do have time to actually just experience life normally. You don't spend all your time talking about your different relationships.
7: No, not at all i mean i work two full-time jobs you know it's yeah. just at the end of the day we've all we're all part of loads of whatsapp groups yeah. i mean it's just it's just voice notes meeting sitting down it's like anything i say to people who think about e or ethical non-monogamy or they say i might be polyamorous i'll say how good are you at keeping in touch with all your friends and if you're that person who's maybe not able to answer all your friends or give them the time Maybe what you're actually desiring is for you and your partner to go swimming, or maybe you and your partner want to just be more confident sharing your fantasies or going to crossbreed or going to club for boating and just being a part of that environment. Yeah. If you are like I take my friendships really seriously the same way I take my relationships seriously, it's about knowing what you also emotionally in your attachment style, what you can what you can emotionally put yourself through.
6: Yeah. I think. That and when I say
7: put yourself through. I mean, what? because any relationship takes time and yeah. focus. I wouldn't just say it's not like Pokemon. Not <laughs> like, I think some people think, right, I've got to be in like six relationships, otherwise I'm not polyamorous. No, you yeah. can be in one relationship and then meeting lots of people and so still it's more, be polyamorous.
6: It's more something you are than how many relationships you have. It's a sort of style you feel comfortable with. That makes sense, yeah.
7: Yeah, I think that it's just a belief system. And I actually think for a lot of women it's very liberating and I think people find it frightening because it puts all the genders it puts both sides completely equal and I I, I mean I couldn't imagine living I, the people I know and I know mo- lots of friends and family who are in that EM world they are so much healthier because of it and I think actually the amount of people I know who've kept quiet about being e and for fear of being like ostracised or treated as being sexually deviant yeah. I think is something that needs to change. I think far more people are e than they
2: realise. Thank you, Mary and Elf. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of the magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore.
1: And I'm Laura Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week. Thank <laughs> you.